Okay, so we're going to carry on with the the, the text. So we're we're up to the praises now, um, and uh, they begin again with this um, the syllable cream invoking Padmasambhava's heart essence. Three, although all Buddhas are one in the sphere of wisdom, and the supreme truth possesses neither parts nor modes. Uh, an alternative translation, although all Buddhas are one in the vastness of jnana, and actual dharmata has no distinctions, reality has no distinctions. I think this is, uh, I mean, it's just really important. It's a reminder that the ultimate nature of all the Buddhas uh, is the same. Um, this is very important to, to Bhante. saw this very clearly. There's, there's no separation between the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, ultimately. Um, so, you know, this, this is one of the reasons why the, the Dharma Dhatu at the beginning is, is, is so uh, very important. Um, you know, on another level, Bhante's talked about all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas as being expressions of the Buddha, of the Buddha's enlightenment. Um, they're not to be separated from uh, the Buddha. Um, so it's quite a, a theme in Bhante, this, this sort of sense of, uh, you know, he talks about it in the survey, doesn't he, the transcendental unity of, of Buddhism, the transcendental unity of all the schools. Um, he even saw that with his teachers. I remember when Aloka made that... Uh, um, picture of his teachers with him beneath him and his his teachers there there were some of the some of the guys who were in the ordination process started to you know think they should go and seek teachings from Dilgo Kensi who was visiting and things like that and uh, I happened to be seeing Bounty about something up in his uh, study which is now Surita's bedroom and um, he asked me what I thought about that, people going to other teachers. And he said, because the argument is put forward that I had a number of teachers, so why can't we have a number of teachers? And I said, well, I usually say, well, you know, you're not Bhante and, you know, and, and so on and so forth. And, he, and he, he, that obviously wasn't good enough. <laughs> he did one of those, mm. um, And uh, he said, um, he just said... Without a lot of comment, he said, the thing is, I didn't see my teachers as separate. Mm -hmm. I didn't see them as separate. I mean, obviously, he sees them as distinct individuals. But there isn't that sense of separation. And I think because he had that deep insight into, if you like, the unity of uh, the Dharma. It's very, very interesting listening, re-listening to his his exposition of... um, Skillful Means Paramita in the Vimalakirti Nidesha series on the Pratisamvids, which I think are, is a, a very important teaching, the Pratisamvids, so-called the analytical knowledges, which are part of Upaya Paramita. Um, Dharma Pratisamvid quotes analytical knowledge, or it's really direct seeing of Dharma, uh, is explained as a direct um, uh, realisation of the truth you know, before any concepts, before expressed into any concepts. And Bhante references the Dasha Bhumika Sutra, which says that the realisation of Dharma 
Pratisambit is knowing directly that all yanas are flow into ekayana, but you know that directly. You know directly, you know that all the different dharma practices are about uh, liberation on the the one way. So I, 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 you know, when I read this little verse, that is in, in, in at the back of my mind. So although all Buddhas are one in the sphere of wisdom, and the supreme truth possesses neither parts nor modes. So we're meditating on that. Padmasambhava, you know, is unified. Um, his ultimate nature is unified with all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Yet, by your skill in the use of right means, you manifest a form suitable for those you intend to convert. And because of your compassion you produce and send forth these phantom forms. So I salute and praise you. So although all Buddhas are one in the sphere of wisdom and the supreme truth possesses neither parts nor mode, out of skillful means, out of compassionate response to the different needs of, of, of you know, the, the, the myriad uh, individual needs of, of particular people in particular places you take a form that is suitable. Um, And these are immediate and spontaneous, compassionate responses to what different individuals need. Um, So Padmasambhava, in this sense, is very much, I think I was saying this yesterday, very much the the embodiment of Upaya Kaushalya, skillful means. If Amitabha is the Dharmakaya, the Dharmakaya, wisdom, Avalokiteshvara, the Sambhogakaya, compassion, Padmasambhava is the Nirmanakaya, skillful means. Wisdom and compassion together, highly attuned to the needs of uh, individuals and particular times and and places. Uh, Padmasambhava can take any form to liberate others, uh, to convert them to the Dharma. You remember that Bodhicitta verse that I recited uh, yesterday from the Tarpe Delan, by whatever means I shall assuredly liberate them all, therefore I shall practice the profound path of the Guru Sadhana. So we're aspiring, you know, in our own practice, our own meditation on Padmasambhava, to become someone who can attune to whoever they're with, to whatever circumstances they're in, in a way that will bring people uh, to the Dharma. Uh, Phantom Forms is David Snellgrove's translation of, of I'm not sure how to pronounce it, I think it's something like Tupa, Tupa, uh, it's spelt Trupa, uh, but I think you pronounce it Tupa. Uh, More typically uh, translated as emanation or manifestation, Bhante translates it as emanation in the, in our Guru Yoga, you actually make a prayer to realise the primevally pure self-originated shunyata, uh, to by following the hard-cutting, direct, skillful path to attain the non-dual jnanakaya, may my emanations liberate the infinite number of beings, deliver the infinite number of beings. So, you know, that's explicitly mentioned. We're trying to develop emanations, believe it or not. So what does that mean? Uh, well, I'm not sure what it means, but anyway, let's, let's go to that. You know, that's science fiction, isn't it? But anyway, um, um, let's, let's just look, uh, just a bit 
more on this word emanation, manifestation, phantom forms. Um, I actually asked Banti what a tupa was. Uh, this is after I'd taken up the Guru Yoga practice, and um, you know we were chatting in Brighton. I was visiting Brighton, both visiting Brighton, and um, sitting having a cup of tea. And I said, "What's a tupa?" <laughs> and he said, mm, "Sort of near Manakaya." <laughs> um, sort of near Manakaya. It's it's actually from the same root as tulku. Tulku is the translation of the Sanskrit near Manakaya. And it, you can see why he's translated it as phantom form, because nirmana means appearance. We usually think of the Nirmanakaya as the historical Buddha, but nirmana actually means appearance, uh, the, the, the Buddha body of appearance, uh, even magical appearance. Uh, so we salute and praise the Guru because he combines dwelling in the vastness of jnana with these particular expressions to communicate the Dharma to others exactly as they need it in whatever circumstances that they're in and, and um, in answer I mean uh, uh, you know I, in answer to your question um, uh, Shudakirti I mean in the tradition this is the, the, this is Buddhahood in the Dzogchen tradition you know that you attain the non-dual jnana, which enables you to emanate innumerable phantom forms to liberate living beings. I mean, so it's just what it says. Okay. Um, but, um, but perhaps, perhaps we could see it more, sort of, you know, perhaps it's just as profound, but perhaps a bit more near at home. It's, it's about begetting the man you need. It's about begetting people. It's about creating... Disciples, if you like. I don't mean self-consciously, I'm a guru and I'm going to create disciples. But it's about um, communicating the Dharma uh, so that other people live the Dharma life and the Dharma starts to expand <coughs> and expand and expand, as Bhante himself has, has done. So it's a know. bit like being all things to all men type of thing. Well, that, that would be the... Not yes, the yeah, but yeah. no... You know, but in a sense, Vimalakirti himself yeah. is not sort of one person. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, on that, on that description. Okay, then comes the particular description of Papasambhava. So now we're going to describe the form he is taking um, from out of the. <laughs> the non-dual jnana, union of all the rare and precious jewels in the most beautiful of forms, protector of all beings, lotus-born, your changeless complexion resembles shining sun on snow, glistening slightly reddish salutation and praise to you. Um, um, Or you could say union of all the three jewels um, in the most beautiful of forms. I must admit, the most beautiful of forms is my own, uh, my own rendering, um, interpretation. Uh, the original says, in the form of an eight-year-old boy. Um, but I, for me, that's too specific. Um, although for many, many years, Padmasambhava did appear to me as an eight-year-old boy. You know, it was very 
was very, very strong and important uh, period, and he sometimes still does. Um, but I, I don't want to be uh, specific, um, and I like this expression um, in the most beautiful of forms. It's reminiscent of a hadith of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, <laughs> I have seen my Lord in the most beautiful of forms. And I think that's important to, to not specify it. Um, you know, the way I led it today, letting him appear as he decides to appear. I think, it, I think it's quite important not to pin things down too much. Um, what is the most attractive and most appealing form for you at any given time? Sometimes he'll be a youth. He'll be 16 years old or uh, around that age. Sometimes he's a man in his prime. You know, uh, uh, it, uh, uh, you know, Papa Sandoval can take those different forms, and I think you have to, you know, re- you know, discover the form that you most respond to, and that will uh, change. Um, but I think we should leave that open. Um, indeed, in another place, in you know, in this sadhana um, that I'm quoting from, it, it doesn't mention anything about the guru's age, but emphasises the guru's beauty. He's supremely attractive. Um, and of course, eight, year, eight years old, he's pointing at the timeless, pure, timeless nature of the guru. Um, he's addressed as the protect. I mean, uh, uh, just, just, I'm going to say a bit more about what Banti said about his appearance a bit later. But again, when, I, when I've been led through the practice by Banti twice... He did not specify the Guru's age in, in neither of those uh, lead-throughs. And he's addressed as the protector of all beings. So union of all the rare and precious jewels and the most beautiful of, all, of forms, protector of all beings. So there's a great emphasis on compassionate protection. I think it's, again, very, very important because sometimes people can relate to Padmasambhava as a sort of authority figure you know, rather stern and, you know, all that. He is a compassionate protector. Um, I've been thinking a lot about protection. Well, not a lot, but off and on about protection lately. Um, And what a big theme it is in Buddhist tradition. Um, The refugees, (laughs) just just there. But so often you you wish people, like in the the Konya Metta Sutta, in Shanti Deva's uh, discussion of the the sameness of self and other, uh, the emphasis is on may they be safe, may they be secure, may they be protected. May I adopt an attitude of protection to the whole world. I mean, really uh, uh, significant. And while I was sort of thinking about these things, and then you've got, you know, so often the Bodhisattvas are called Natas, which means protector. Um, the Abhayadana Mudra is so ubiquitous in, in Buddhist tradition and in, in you get these incredible standing images in India which really do look like protectors and um, I wonder if it's a sort of area that we've sort of drawn out sufficiently. Um, around the time I was thinking of this I had two uh, letters uh, from two quite different people who were basically admitting how embarrassed and ashamed they were. These were all the members, been ordained a while, that they felt so much fear 
and so much insecurity and felt and was guilt well guilty about that and and um, I said well you know but there's so much emphasis on protection in the tradition it's almost as if it's acknowledging that fear and insecurity are part of the human condition and it's not something to feel bad about or certainly not guilty about actually we need to you know acknowledge it um accept it and realize that others are in exactly the same position in one way or another and extend this compassionate protecting response you know beyond ourselves to uh, to others so I, i've been thinking quite a lot about that that you know not to be ashamed of fear i think i've i often feel ashamed that i feel frightened or unconfident you know that there's some terrible failing or whatever you know lack of confidence or you must be you know really badly deeply psychologically scarred and you know I can remember at a centre I lived in years ago, one of the, the most damning things you could say about somebody, deeply flawed. <laughs> deeply flawed. You know, of course, we were... You know, that, those of us were saying it were deeply flawed. <laughs> it runs very, very deep, I think, this lack of confidence. And, uh, and we, we invoke Padmasalva as a compassionate protector. Um, very, very important, I think. And of course, there's so much, you know, fear around, isn't there? And it's, you know, it's so much on display. And people do, well, I do, the most silly things on the basis of fear and insecurity and anxiety. And um, it's, it's deep stuff. I remember Sigla Varda Sutta seminar. In that, in that sutta, the Buddha talks about four unskillful roots greed, hatred, delusion, and fear. And Bhante said, you know, we should dwell a lot more on those four. You know, fear of, you know, what you love being taken from you. Fear of what you don't want being imposed upon you. You know, it's sort of bound up with that greed, hatred and delusion. So I think there's quite a lot there. And perhaps the more we can feel that Padmasambhava is a, you know, compassionate protector. You know, sometimes his mudra is, is like that, isn't it? It's not down there, it's in front of his heart. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, I've been seeing him more like that lately. The, you know, the Vajra or the hand is just like that. You know, as if it's, you know, perhaps, a, you know, this is why I'm, partly why I'm sort of reflecting on this important quality of protection. Um, you know, really protecting people, you know, from themselves, protecting their spiritual life, protecting the Dharma, um, easing people's fears and so on. Very, very important. Not something to be ashamed of. Mm. Just a stir to a reflection connects mm. with what you were saying yesterday about place. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, we move around, so how can you have a sense of place? Mm. That's it. And one of the ways that I, coming out of sadhana practice, actually, uh, thought about this is in terms of uh, the mandala, like. Because that's also a, a mandala is a, a sort of a circle of protection, yes, a yeah. protected space. Yes, yeah. And um, the jinnas, the powerful protectors whose purpose is to guard the universe. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, what I do first thing in the morning is I, and also the Siddhartha Sutra, uh, 
about the four directions. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's it's quite interesting connecting it with place, the sense of knowing where east is and west is, mm. north and mm. south, and orientating mm. yourself in the world. Yeah. And, and, and then the Dharma gives you a myth yeah. for yeah. that, which is, you know, Four directions, as in the Ziggler of the city, yeah. Yeah. and the the jinnas and one other, yeah. um, and that the sadhana can then take place, or your life in a way, can take place within mm. some sort of mandala yeah. protection, yeah, yeah. and 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 we create mandalas in other ways, and the, mm. the order is a mandala. Mm. Um, which is really important for mm. us in terms of confidence. Yes, it? yeah. You know, what, what is my community? Well, it's actually it's this yes, yeah. group of people. Yeah, yeah. No, that's really, really it was interesting what you said about orientation. Yeah. There's that wonderful uh, chapter at the beginning of Henri Corbin's book, The Man of Light in Iranian Sufism, on orientation, you know, because he's taking this idea of Ishraq, you know, the, the, uh, this school in, in, uh, in Persia, you know, who Ishraq literally means the Orient, which is not of the East or the West, but it's the polar Orient. It's the, your sense of meaning. Yet in our context, it would be the refugees. And he just makes the point that to be a human being is to be orientated, yeah. not just in terms of our physical maps, but yeah. spiritually. Yeah. You know, we have a spiritual orientation, and that gives huge confidence and meaning. You know, finding finding that, creating that, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. in the Islamic vein, um, I was reading something last, just last week actually about five times a day, every Muslim in the world yeah, yeah. creates a great big circle yeah. around, oriented on Mecca, yeah. and if you're in the north of it, you point south, you yeah. and that, that that's a kind of a mandala. Yeah, yeah. Very powerful. Mm. <laughs> That's in a book by King Charles. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> but that's interesting. You mentioned the yeah. king. Yeah. That's a, you know, because of, I mean, there's another thing I think that that in in relation to this thing of being being orientated and situated, you have to elect in your mind, in your psyche, the wise and glorious king. You know, otherwise you, you, you're going to be disintegrated and again there's going to be insecurity and, you know, the Buddha has to be, in a, you know, elected, as it were, as the wise and glorious king. Because a mandala doesn't actually happen unless there's a sovereign principle. I think that's, you know, so, so important. But it has to be wise it has to be glorious, it has to be compassionate, um, it has to be true. Yeah. Good mandalas are so important in the Bhadrayana. Yeah. I mean, I just wonder yeah. if that's something we haven't explored that mm. much as well. I mean, I haven't. Prob probably, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Bhante, of course, you know, talk, talks in the Ten Pillars, doesn't he, about when he's talking about going for refuge and the practice of the precepts, you know, talking about our life as a mandala, mm. the, the, the three jewels are placed at the centre, mm. and everything finds its level around the three jewels. Some things might even have to be banished from 
the mandala because the behavior just doesn't go with the you know with the with the center and of course a mandala isn't an organization organizing principle in the secular sense because the mandala is 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 it's a mandala palace you know you've got the cosmic mountain at the center and on top of that the great palace with you know the buddha or bodhisattva it's based on old indian notions of sovereignty uh, the raja di raja the king of kings you know who who is at the center of all these other countries yeah. buddhism takes that over the vajrayana particularly takes that over and applies it to you know the the, the deity at the center of your life bhante's done that with the three jewels the buddha dharma and sangha at the center yeah and it's definitely hierarchical that's the point of it it's not uh, that's why it's saying it's not like a secular organizing principle the 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 three jewels obviously are on a higher or on a higher plane yeah but let's go on otherwise we'll we'll never get this done um, so the next line is your changeless complexion resembles shining sun on snow glistening slightly reddish or with a glowing tinge of rose as a as a as another <coughs> translation of it a glowing tinge of rose white and lovely isn't it i mean they sometimes talk about this as uh, this is this this represents the union of the solar and lunar en- energies you know padmasambhava is uniting solar and lunar wisdom and means and that's reflected in his actual complexion it's white and red uh, or simply as dilgo kensi describes it he's glowing with health <laughs> glowing with health and energy um um so so this sense of kind of union of opposites as we'll see um runs through the the the, the iconography of papa samba in different ways this sense of two in one um there's quite a bit to say about this it's interesting when banti led it once i can't quite recall his exact words now unfortunately and i didn't write them down he he said that padmasambhava's features were neither indian nor chinese and it 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 didn't seem to be just to do with races um it seemed to be pointing using that sort of language but pointing to a an appearance that was sort of combined and transcended um you know different characteristics um it goes on uh, or the verse goes on means and wisdom satsupaya and prajna are indistingu- indistinguishable and so you hold the vajra and skull or the skull bowl you hold the vase of life life for two in one and vase for wisdom so again you got the union of opposites again you can't separate means and wisdom the vajra here symbolizes skillful means the skull symbolizes wisdom particularly the wisdom of emptiness so both are present you can't have one without the other vimalakirti is very very strong on this in the vimalakirti nidesha that if you have wisdom without means or means without wisdom you are in bondage you are not liberated it's only when wisdom and means are united that you are liberated 
So Vajra here is means. It, it's skillful means. Of course, in our version of, of the description of the sadhana, it says the Vajra is the truth itself. Yeah. The truth itself. Um, but the Vajra is an active symbol. So I see it as the truth communicated appropriately, skillfully, hence skillful means. And the mudra that the Vajra is held in is, is known as Nancy Zilnon. Uh, Bhante translates that as the sovereign of the visible world, mudra, uh, or the conqueror of appearances and existence. And it's with this Vajra and mudra um, that the, 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 the Vajra held with this mudra is ex- expresses of, expressive of the guru's realisation, yes, of luminous emptiness, um, uh, the luminous emptiness of all appearances. And it's because of this realisation that the guru subjugates, converts the gods and demons. He's the... Say that word again. Nancy Zilnon. N-A-N-G-S-I. New word. Z-I-L-N-O-N. Nancy Z-I-L-N-O-N. Nancy Zilnon. You said it was the conqueror of appearances and... Existence. Bounty translates it as the sovereign of the visible world. uh, The lord of the visible world. Because he realises the truth itself, you could say, the truth of appearances, that means he can convert the gods of place and the demons. He's not taken in by them. He's not frightened of them. He has mastery of them. So when he shows that Vajra, it said they then give the heart of their life, uh, the heart of their life, which is their Ningpo in Tibetan, which is both uh, Hridaya and Bija in Sanskrit. So the heart of their life is their name, their secret name. He gives, they give that up to him, so he then has mastery over them, and then they're serving him to give them a treasure to protect for future generations. Are we all that. About the finger gesture plus the Vajra? Or are we, are we... The Vajra and the gesture. Right. Because in some representations it's just the one finger, isn't it? It's usually held like that, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But there are some with just the one you're probably quite right yeah, yeah I, this is the one I'm most familiar with it's this idea sometimes it's called the demon subduing uh, mudra yeah so is it is it because they he sort of deeply understands their nature and what's going on with them and everything that he, and he shows that to them in a way through the he's not the taken gesture. in He's, yeah, he's not taken go, in by okay. appearances. We, yeah. We yeah. <laughs> yeah. They can't... I mean, he does have those great magical battles just for the fun of it, you know, but he doesn't need to because he actually sees through their, their nature. So there's no, there's no fear. If you like, it's, a bit, it's like in the Bardo when you recognise that all of these appearances are just that. They are all expressions of luminous emptiness... Uh, so, you know, they don't frighten. Uh, you, 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 in a sense, you enjoy them, and they start to serve you. In this case, yeah. Well, I mean, a kind of equivalent 
today, say, for instance? And now that, I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there are equivalences, but um, I'm still working all that out. But I suppose, you know, just talking about this business of finding out the name of the God, you know, the, the name of it, you know, we, you know we, we know that ourselves. You know, if we, we're troubled by a particular state of mind, while we don't know its name, we have difficulty. We're under its spell. When we can accurately name it, it ceases to have the power it once had. We start to sort of see through it. Uh, we're at least able to kind of work with it. So that's one of the ways that I look at it. First of all, for us, it's really accurate naming. I think this is why the Abhidharma is so valuable, because it gives you such a precise way of naming mental states and, and so on. And perhaps that also is in the world around us as, as well. Um, but I think there's much more to it than that, because... I mean, that's, that's one way of looking at it. But I also take it quite literally that, that, that you know, there is a way. Wait, there you are in some mountain fastness and there's some looming presence or something going on and you're able to name uh, what that is uh, because you're not intimidated by it. Because when you're intimidated, you can't see anything. If you're able to see through, you're able to... to to, to, well, it, I say name, but it's more it reveals what it is to you so it can then serve you. I, I, I think it must really be that. Um, we can do our psychological interpretation, which is no doubt helpful and useful, and perhaps our sociological labellings and all the rest of it. But uh, there is also this other level, which is magic. Yeah. Kind of like sort of recognizing it because he's like seen it before, like in the cremation ground when he's working on himself. Yeah, and I mean, it, 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 whatever the training is, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. Well, I told that story of a, of a dream I had, didn't I? You know, I mean, I don't want to dress it up but I mean I think it I mean it did help me understand how the how the, what maybe these things work so in the dream I'm in the Aryatara shrine room there's this suddenly there appears this Egyptian mummy type figure you know somebody in bandages coming towards me to do terrible things to me very very frightening and a voice says something like this is what happens when you practice the Dharma wrongly this is the spectre of Buddhism you know, there's a, a demon, of course, it was telling me something about myself. Um, and I, I didn't know what to do. I was terrified. And I picked up a crystal. It was the only thing handy in the shrine room. And I threw it at the mummy coming towards me. And it, as it flew out of my hand, it turned into a green vajra made of light, hit the figure, which then dissolved into the floor. And I went over to it. And there were just these were these crystals emerging from stones. Um, you know, and at the time, it was actually the, the dream was telling me something about something I needed to become aware of, which I don't think I heeded at the time. I just thought, wow, that's a really interesting dream. But one of the things it did do was, was sort of 
give me some understanding of this thing of you know, it, it's not it wasn't naming psychologically as it were there was a demon but it and it was but the demon was the demon of practicing the dharma wrongly and the transformation was direct it wasn't thought out Padmasambhava doesn't think, work out how to deal with the gods. It's immediate, because there's this immediate awareness of appearances, you know, of the empty nature of appearances. So there's this immediate, attuned response. That's his means, that's his vajra of means. In a way, I think this also gave me an understanding of how the vajra is both quiescent as a sort of crystal... But when it becomes active, it becomes a thunderbolt. Um, you know, so that so I think it, I think it's like that. It's looking for, you know, because sometimes you know we have talks, don't we? What are the demons of the age? And that's a good thing to look at. But it always seems to me very cerebral. You know, oh, we can name this demon and that demon, and and you know all the in other words, all the wrong views of the age and all the rest of it, you know, and I'm sure that's valuable and important, but I don't think that's Padmasambhava activity in this sense. We're talking about immediacy uh, of response, I think. It, I'm not saying it's wrong or bad, it's useful, obviously, but, but I, I'm interested in this immediacy of, of response to, you know, you know destructive um, things. I should, yeah, somebody, yeah. Uh, you mentioned when he holds the budget to his heart. Does that mantra have a different name? Or? I think it's the same one, but that that form tends to be cross-legged, yeah. and it's it's a much more meditative oh. form. Okay. Yeah. So it means the same thing. I, as far as I know, I wouldn't. You'll have to go and. I mean, I I do look up these things, and there seem to be endless interpretations of Padmasambhava's iconography, depending on the tradition and a little bit of emphasis here and a little bit of emphasis there. And I found a thing the other day online where there was this extraordinary kind of map of Padmasambhava's iconography with all these numbered map. Every single detail is, you know, means this, that or the other. You know, quite extraordinary. Yeah. If you're into that sort, yeah, sort of thing. I like yeah. it you like it there. There you go. You like it there. Yeah. I mean, just to say about the conversion of gods, um, I remember years ago in Birmingham walking around the park with Bhante when he lived at Majimaloka and I was, you know, I had this question that kept coming up about how Padmasambhava appeared. Mm. You know, what did he look like? And I said, you know, Bhante, I said, you know, I mean, what am I doing? Or how do I see Padmasambhava? And I meant sort of literally the iconography. And he sort of paused. I, I forget where we were, by the boating lake, I think. He sort of paused. Everything went a bit still. And he said, hmm, the way I see Padmasambhava is that he transforms... Well, it's not evil that he transforms. It's natural forces. Natural forces... Uh, which, if they're not brought along the path, they become destructive. And I thought that was very significant. You know, it's natural forces. That's what you're doing, what you're harnessing. And interestingly, at the time, I was in one of my intensive 
you know, Sufi phases and, you know, all this stuff of the beloved and, you know, love of the beloved and all that sort of thing. And I did sort of wonder if that was a sort of, that erotic, that eros force, if you like, was sort of in play, you know, in relation to the sadhana, as if that was a sort of natural force, sort of finding its, you know, a little period of transformation uh, before destroying me again. Um, anyway. You said it's not cerebral. Would you say that it's more energetic or experiential? Yeah. 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 And, and I think also the whole, we, we do need to do the full thing with the, with the conversion of the gods. You know, it's such a rich area, that, that whole chapter before he goes into Tibet. And then even after the, the building of Samye, some of the deals he makes with some of these very, very sinister figures, you know, like Peha, the, the, uh, the, the, the protector of Samye, really mysterious passages and, you know, Rahula and things like that. I mean, they, 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 they would repay some serious reading because, you know, they're quite, um, you know, they, 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 I, can't, I can't really sort of describe the mood of them, but um, the whole thing is that these, these figures are, are become protectors. They're not just transform. Oh, you know, that's great. We transform the deep. They become protectors of the Dharma. They become protectors of treasures. In a sense, they wanted that. You know, the thing about these forces—they're volatile. Actually, they want a king. They want somebody to worship. They want somebody that who's bigger than them. You know, who's greater than them, who's wiser than them. They, 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 they desperately want a leader. Because otherwise they are going to cause mayhem. And they don't actually like causing mayhem. But who else, you know, what are they going to do if they haven't actually got a lord? And it's the same within ourselves. And it's the same in the world around us. And, you know, they're, they're, again, I'm sort of opening up areas. I can't, I don't think I can explain it. But it just seems that, that that's, that's what it's about. Mm. And these things becoming protectors. And as Bhante says in that 79 lecture, you know, if these forces aren't brought in, you know, well, they, what they do is they add energy and vividness and life, mm. you know, to, to the spiritual life. So it's not a pale and watery thing, mm. you know, and, 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 you know, there's a vitality, mm. you know, to it all. So there's lots to reflect on here, I think. I mean, I always felt very dissatisfied with um, the, the, the demons being spoken of as just the, the different Maras. They seem to be much, much more than that. Yes, they seem to be yes. very, very powerful forces. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there's overlap, I think, between yeah. a bit, between the notion of Mara. It's interesting because Mara gets different treatment in different traditions, even in Indian Buddhist tradition. Mm. So the Mara of the Pali Canon tends to be by and large, a sort of, in some ways, a rather pathetic figure mm. in the end, you know, that as soon as he's known, he skulks off. Um, you know, lots of stories about that. Bhante says that the Mara of the Sarangama Samadhi Sutra, is it the Sarangama Samadhi Sutra? Or the, yeah, which, you know, this is a very powerful figure who actually gains enlightenment, I think, in that sutra. You know, quite different, he says, from the, the Mara of the Pali Canon. Um, you know, but, but, but the, 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 
the uh, the gods of the Tibetan tradition. I mean, there's all sorts of orders of them, and you know, Nagas and Galpo spirits, and they all have their particular functions and 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 so on. Anyway, well, it, it sort of feels as though there's resonances within me as well. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, know, and must be. I've come, come across situation. I can't remember the situation, but uh, that it, it maybe there's something going on between you and some, me and someone else. And he says, oh, they're causing trouble, but there's something they want from me. Mm. You mm. know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It's yeah. almost like, as you say, they want something, someone to help. Yes. Help them with that energy or something. Yeah. Maybe I've done it myself as well. Yeah. Maybe I've been a bit of a pain, and that's because I want someone to help me. Yeah. <laughs> with yeah. my energy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just wonder if um, maybe that Andy's saying that he thought, you know, for Buddhism to take root, we need to go back to a healthy paganism. I wonder if that's more, if the yeah. demons aren't more on those sort of lines. Yes, yeah. I'm sure, yeah. yeah. Gods of place and, and you know, again, that thing. It's interesting with him as well because he had such a sensitivity that there's that, there's that passage where he's in, I think, the South Island in New Zealand yeah. and there's this open-cast mining going on and he said that it reminded him of a passage in the Pali Canon where the, where the powerful gods of place... Were, were causing a great city to be built. He said he thought the countryside, the landscape, was sort of inviting the mining. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, it isn't scientifically provable or anything like that. But, you know, we tend to think, you know, you, you know that, we're, that men are in control. Mm-hmm. But how do you know? You know, mm-hmm. they're not under the, the force of mm-hmm. powerful gods of place mm-hmm. that, that are doing something interesting way of looking at things mm. you know I mean <coughs> it makes you think mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean there's a base level where in Tibetan society they, they believe these are real oh they do yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. There's no, no interpretation <coughs> none at all before that yeah there might be some afterwards yeah 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 well, Tibet is, you know, they, they reckon that there's a demon goddess, a demoness, which straddles the whole of the land. And, yeah. and temples are on that, very important temples are on that demoness, pinning her down, you know. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's, the, you know, that's the, the sort of mythology. I mean, it's absolutely, you know, fascinating. And, of course, we're, we're not quite like that. It's interesting, isn't it, that in that 79 lecture... You know, when he's talking about the body of Tarpa Nagpo, you know, and we've got to find the treasure in the body, you know, he starts to talk about the city of London, going, being driven through the city of London, and, you know, this incredible sort of, you know, and, he, and he's saying, this is what we're up against, you know, the, 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 the economics. What did he say? Economics with no purpose, no higher purpose. Yeah. You know, as if to say, well, there is a demon there. I actually went through the city of London recently, and I, I don't think I've ever been through it before, and I was, I was sort of amazed by the oppressive atmosphere. It wasn't just the buildings. There was a vibe. I, I thought, gosh, no, there is a vibe. There is something over and above everything else. You know, weird, very weird. Um, during the first few weeks of the lockdown, I don't know if anybody saw this footage emerged online of, I think it was seven Tibetan lamas 
and they're performing fire pujas oh, yeah. for the virus. Yeah. And it made me realize, yeah. of course things are starting to become more and more chaotic because we're not paying homage to the gods mm. and the demons mm. or whatever language you want to use. Mm. Mm. It just, once it started, it just immediately made sense. Well, this is what's going on. There's a very interesting article by Matthew Kapstein that we're jumping around to. We're never going to get through this. <laughs> um, you know, very, about why Buddhism became so successful in, 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 you know, one of the factors in its spread through Tibet and even China was that its magic rites were regarded as more efficacious against pestilence. Mm. You know, really, really yeah. sort of, you know, because everybody thought in terms of magic, you know, and, and of course, you know, the fact that you're, you know, the, the superior punya of of Buddhist practitioners means the magic rites are going to push back against the demons of of pestilence, you know, and it's reflected a bit in that 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 puja that we did last night, you know, Abhisam are pushing back the demons of pestilence and 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 war and disease, you know. Yeah, we've seen that yeah. story with um, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name properly. Sold from Alion, the woman who wrote the book Feeding Demons. Oh yeah. Yeah. She talks about one of the one of her disciples or students or whatever coming to her with advanced HIV AIDS mm. and doing the child mm. practice with her for I don't know weeks or mm. months. Goes back to wherever he did and uh, his doctors are like, it's almost gone. How is that possible? Wow, there you go. Yeah. And we have a doctor here. Um, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> when I was writing about Buddha, yeah. I realised that I was talking, wrote a chapter about Buddha and society. Mm. And what became clear to me was that uh, the Buddha was deeply involved in his society, mm. according to the Pali scriptures, mm. um, but mainly in these terms. Yeah, magic. Magic, yeah. demons, yeah. oppression, uh, yeah, taming mm. demons. Yeah. And but there's a whole... Um, school of engaged Buddhism mm. that's trying that looks to the Pali Canon and tries to find Buddhas. Mm. I mean, including Dr. Ambedkar. Mm. Mm. And that the, there are thin pickings. Mm. And so one of the responses is, well, actually, he wasn't very involved in his society. Mm. But I think that the that what's happening is that because we live in a in a modern society, we don't understand the values of we don't understand what social engagement means in a pre-modern society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and actually, you just need to look at yeah. Burma, Thailand, any yeah. of those places, China, Japan, yeah. see what Buddhist priests have done. Yeah. It's that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if you're a, you know, if you're a Lama, you, 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 you go to the Lama for all sorts of blessings. It's not yeah. just sort of teachings, it's sort of magical protection. And, you know, like Dada in particular was apparently very, very effective in his, you know, magic. You know, like that, that you know, Bounty, somebody came to Bounty and said, you know, these stones are falling on my roof. And they're marked with a number, was it the number eight or something? You know, I forget which number it was, which is, oh, this is obviously black magic. So he talked to Rinpoche about it and... Rinpoche did something and it stopped. And Bhante said, you know, what, what did you do? And he said, uh, I did some puja in Hindi. A kuch puja here or something probably like that. Yeah, probably, probably Dorje Shukta. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on, shall we? So, 
so the skull cup, let's come to the skull cup, uh, or the skull bowl, bowl that's held in this deck. This symbolizes wisdom according to this deck, shunyata, um, held in the mudra of samadhi. So Padmasambhava is continually meditating on the wisdom of emptiness. And in our practice, it's filled with the amrita nectar of great bliss, the deathless nectar of, of great bliss that you drink when you've renounced uh, through emptiness. Um, and in these verses, there is also the vase of amrita standing in the, in the amrita-filled skull cup. Um, so life in this verse, um, which life for two in one, is the nectar of long life. It's associated, of course, with Amitayus. And remember that Bhante was also initiated into uh, Amitayus by Kacharimpache at the time he received the Padmasamba for initiation. So life is two in one, Yuganada, another important tantric term. Um, so the deathless is the union of all the opposites. Um, you know, contained in that vase that symbolises uh, wisdom. Um, Padmasambhava says of himself um, in that song to Trisong Detson, I am Padmasambhava the little one, possessing the instructions of the ecstasy uh, that rouses from sleep, <coughs> while in the three realms the transitory being dies, I evoke that glorious yoga vase of the knowledge of life. So in other words, he's attained the deathless. Um, and in Atta Yoga, in Dzogchen, the highest realisation is sometimes called the attainment of the youthful vase-like body. Very expressive. Um, this vase is also associated with uh, the vase of initiation. Padmasambhava is the archetypal guru who gives the archetypal initiation. Happy to, let, let's finish with the, at least the description. How much more have we got to go? Oh dear. <laughs> okay. Embracing like a consort the Katvanga, which cuts off at the root the three poisons, you are both wrathful and smiling for the converting of living beings. Salutation and praise to you. So the Katvanga, the trident, is an incredibly rich and complex symbol. I mean, and there are loads and loads of explanations of it. Um, uh, but let's just stay with this thing that it's the darkini. It's his consort, his wisdom consort. Um, uh, and remember what Bhante has to say about the darkini. Um, so this is Bhante from one of the Milarepa seminars. The darkenies represent untrammeled energies whose natural medium is the openness of reality and their breath is inspiration. The darkenies' breath is the inspiration of inspiration itself. It comes straight out of the open space of reality itself, straight from the enlightened mind. If you can't feel the darkenies' breath on your shoulder... Whatever you do, spiritually speaking, is just hypocritical posturing. So a good motto to carry with you through your spiritual life is 
don't forget the breath of the darkenese. It's very strong, isn't it? If you can't feel the darkenese breath on your shoulder, whatever you do, spiritual, spiritually speaking, is just hypocritical posturing. So I, you know, reading that into this Katvanga, which is the darkeni, his consort, from which he's never separated, never apart, Padmasabha is never apart from that inspiration. And it's that inspiration that's cut off the three poisons, which are the three heads beneath the three blazing, flaming prongs. Um, you know, in our sadhana, of course, and in other places, there are all sorts of other things, you know, on the, on the, the Katvanga, which I, I'm not going to go into here. I think the main thing to, to reflect upon is that the Katvanga is a vertical line. It goes from earth to heaven, heaven to earth. You know, it, that's his constant companion, that inspiration. Sometimes the Katvanga is identified with the other duty, the central channel, the central channel of the yogic body, which in Padmasambhava's place, in Padmasambhava's case, it's completely open. You know, everything is, as it were, integrated. Everything is that uh, inspiration. All the energies are straight, um, moving upward, moving in the right direction, freely circulating. It's interesting, by the way, on, on uh, the symbols, just to show you that Bhante himself uh, could vary his meditation on the symbols of Padmasambhava. This is what he says in that lecture in 79. He, evidently on the shrine, there were the different uh, things that Padmasambhava held. Uh, holds. Um, it's quite interesting what he says. Um, uh, he said, we've got these emblems of Padmasambhava on the shrine today, and you might have been wondering what they mean, but too much explanation isn't really necessary. One should just sort of just look at them and try to just take in something of the feeling associated with them. There's the lotus cap surmounted by the Vajra. Uh, you all know what the Vajra means, or at least you can feel it. And that's surmounted by the feather. I hope it's the vulture's feather. The, the vulture being the highest flying of all the birds. Sometimes they say an eagle's fe- feather because they give different ex- explanations. And somewhere there should be a skull, a skull cup. And strictly speaking, it should be filled with blood, at least with red wine, which represents the bliss which you sort of quaff when you experience the voidness and, you, and you, you've renounced everything. And that renunciation is bliss, and that bliss is, as it were, quaffed from the bowl of your renunciation. And then there's that staff with the, that same trident, you know, which we saw on the Nalanda crest. There's different explanations of the three prongs, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, Nirmanakaya, the three heads, which are the three poisons, the three... You can imagine Gopanti going on. This also represents the darkening because Padmasambhava holds it in the crook of his arm. So it represents the subjugated darkening principle. It represents even, you could say, all the gods and demons and darkenings which Padmasambhava has subjugated, which he holds in the crook of his arm, which have, as it were, been integrated into his total being. So, another explanation. You know, the inspiration... You know the, the 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 transformation of all that 
you know, swirling material into your spiritual life, the more explanations, the better. I was really curious uh, earlier on. You mentioned uh, greed, hatred, delusion, and fear. Uh, and I'm wondering how they were able to work three poisons. Yeah, it really does seem fear is a fourth poison, but it's not emphasised very much yet. It seems to be very. Yeah, yeah. No, I. Apple. Yeah. So how do we fit all the three? Uh, well, uh, actually, sometimes I think I have seen four heads on Papa Samba. Uh, you know, sometimes you see stacks of them. You know, there because there is so many forms. I mean, fear is implied, isn't it? Because as I, th- I think, as I said, you know, you you you're frightened of losing what you love, and you're frightened of gaining what you don't love, what you hate, what you're aversive to. Um, you know, and all all of that takes place in the delusion of believing in a real self and other. So you could you could sort of see that as implied in the in the in all of those three skulls. Yeah. Last year, on my ordination retreat, Suvadra gave me a sadhana with three freshly severed heads. Yes. Is that what I should stick with? Yeah, do it as he's given it to you. Yeah. Usually it's a skull, a slightly rotting head, and a freshly severed head. Um, but go with what he gave you. You do you know, what he's given you, and if that's working, stay with that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Pavabasa. So about the relationship between Yes, because you get this thing is another nice complicated bit of symbolism for you because it's also said that the Vajra, the skull cup, and the Katvanga represent different initiations. So the Vajra is associated with the vase initiation, and the skull is associated with the secret initiation, and this is associated with the, the pragna initiation, and of course the pragna is sometimes known as the darkani, and you know there's all that sort of stuff. But I'll just make a general point rather than a technical point. It's very you know when you do the Padmasambhava sadhana, there's a wonderful thing about Padmasambhava. You, you know the whole of the Dharma is in that figure, you know with all of the, the different symbols. He 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 is initiating you. Don't worry about the technicalities of which initiation. He's giving you a di- he's showing you directly what you need to be initiated in at the moment. So it might be that different things become prominent at different times. I mean, one of the things you, you, you know, I'm not saying these are visions, but I, last night when we were doing the Todtring Cell Mantra, I felt as though the point of his badra was right on the crown of my head. You know, it was, you know, obviously communicating something. I, I, it wasn't a vision or anything like that. I just felt that. There have been periods where I felt, and I'm not making it up, that he's pushing, you know, he's, he's leaning out with the skull cup and even saying, drink. You know, um, you know, I didn't um, <laughs> didn't quite know how to drink. You know, you know in the shrine room. Um, all I'm sa- and, and at other times it would be something. Else. It might be the robes. It might be the lotus hat. It might be, you know, what I'm trying to get at is that when you do this practice, really open and notice what 
you're being shown. And it might be that's something to go away and reflect on. It might reveal itself, you know, what you're, you, you, know, you know, but he will be showing you something that you need, you know, or making you aware of something that you need to be aware of. You know, you, know, you even get this in the old... Uh, you know, in the old Pali Theravadin tradition, don't you? You know, you know, if if you've got a block in meditation, look for the sign. Look for the nimitta. Look for a sign in meditation to tell you what's happening, tell you what's going on. You know, these nimitta, and sometimes the nimittas are, are are appearing to. Sometimes they can be showing you what you need to change. Sometimes the nimittas are actually a sign of you becoming more absorbed. And if you just give them more attention you know, you'll get more deeply in, in, into your meditation. I mean, I always know when things are going well in meditation is if, if I have a, a memory of, of Bhante meditating, you know, to have meditated with Bhante, that's often a sign that I'm becoming more absorbed and I just need to, you know, meditate on him meditating um, for, for things to go a bit deeper. So it's a similar, I think, with this... With, with the, particularly, I think, with Prabhupada, although probably with other sadhanas as well, there's so much imagery, and it, but, but at different times things will be more prominent, and they'll be initiating you. They'll be initiating you. They're doorways into something. Mm-hmm. One of the things I've really appreciated about this programme is lots of space. Yeah. Like we haven't filled the programme. Yeah. A bit like that on the Going for Refuge and Prostration practice retreats as yeah. well. Yeah. Like you need space yes. to just let things occur. Yes, yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna do one last bit before we finish because I want to finish the, the appearance. Um I was thinking of not I thought we'd finish study um today, but I don't think we're going to. I think we'll finish off tomorrow. Um can't you yeah. If that's all right uh, with you. Anyway, the next phrase. You are both wrathful and smiling for the converting of living beings. So we come to the mysterious, enigmatic expression. uh, This wrathful smile. Very, very hard to um, get this expression. Um, Semi-wrathful actually indicates ecstatic. Very often, semi-wrathful figures like Kurukula is semi-wrathful. That's ecstasy. There's this quality of ecstasy. I don't know if you've ever seen that photograph of it's one of the, the probably the most famous looks like me images. The one that was in Sunday Monastery. It's probably been destroyed. But even in a photograph, it's it, it's a brilliant, brilliant expression. It's so mysterious. It, it, it can look like a wrathful smile, but it looks ecstatic. You know, somebody in a state of, of bliss, uh, really alive features. Um, so alive, it looks fierce. So alive with love and bliss and energy, it looks fierce. You know, it's, it's that animated. Um, it's interesting, the little, the little question and answer session that Bhante did on the Padmasana of Asadna in Tuscany in 81... Um, you know, some people were saying that they they uh, they they didn't like the wrathful bit of Padmasambhava's face because it was disapproving, it looked like Jehovah, God the Father, 
the disapproving father. And Bunty was really puzzled. How could he be disapproving? This is Padmasambhava. This is the embodiment of compassion. And Visantra had a sort of major, told me about it, you know, that, that he'd been completely misseeing the figure. Um, there's no disapproval. Or if you do feel disapproved of, well, look at yourself. You know, why are you feeling disapproved of? Is that irrational? Is that just irrational guilt, in which case dump it? Or have you been naughty? <laughs> and, um, you know, the guru is just reflecting that back to you, you know, that you have to work that out. Um, Dilgo Kensi describes it as a slight frown or crease between his eyebrows, but smiling, thus uniting peaceful and wrathful aspects. And sometimes they say the gaze is into space. You know, he's looking at the ultimate nature. Um, sometimes he's regarding you, looking at you with great tenderness and compassion. Um, but the look, what's interesting about it, you are both wrathful and smiling for the converting of living beings. The look is there to change people, to convert them, to liberate them. That's why the expression is there. You know, it, 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 you know it, it's the look of somebody who wants to connect and communicate uh, with people. Um, yeah, if you like, it's a fierce encouragement. A fierce in, in, encouragement. Sometimes love is ferocious, isn't it? You know, when you, you know, when you really love somebody, care very, very deeply about someone. I mean, but genuinely, I don't mean with sticky affection and attachment, but a really proper disinterested in love. It's fierce. It can seem fierce, because you'll do anything, you know, to help them. Um, but it's very, very important to feel the, the care of, of Padmasambhava for you. He's your teacher. He's your, he's your spiritual friend. I mean, it's amazing when you read the, the Tibetans, you know, they, you, they, they talk all the time about only Father Guru, you know. And it, the Father is very, very positive in this, you know, in this tradition. You, you, you're all this sort of care... Even mother, father, mother, you know, all, all this, you know, is, is brought to, to the figure, everything. So uh, if, you're, if you do fall into thinking of him being, um, you know, stern and, you know, sort of unpleasantly so, you know, you just have him smiling. Just have him smiling and, and, and really, really encouraging. Um, you know, he wants, you know, he wants to be in communication. Okay, we'll stop there. We'll come on to clothing tomorrow. <laughs>